Thank you, Jeremy and Beth, for that song of encouragement. Good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. This morning we come to the final text of our study through the letter of 2 Timothy. And let's read together this text. Would you stand with me again? We're going to read verses 9 through 22 of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Join me in prayer. Father, we have your word before us this morning. You have inspired your word. It is filled with your authority. It is sufficient for our every need in life and godliness. Father, I am humbled as I come before this text to read the final words of the precious Apostle Paul. Lord, we are, we are so privileged to hold in our hands this letter written from his highest affliction and yet right before his greatest joy as he saw you face to face in His new body. Father, we are privileged to read the words that went through His heart and mind very shortly before He was martyred for the sake of the Gospel. So Father, as as You have given us this privilege, we pray that Your Spirit would help us to see Christ-likeness in Paul. And that His hope, His affections, His desires, dependence would become ours. And you'd work them in us 
through the Spirit of Christ who lives in us, that we would be able to respond to the greatest afflictions and even the anticipation of death as Paul did. Teach us, Father, to be different than who we are. Teach us to have different responses to those who wrong us and those who desert us and the difficulties that leave us alone and all the many things that we experience in similar ways that Paul experienced. Even the fears that come traipsing through our hearts and seek to control us. Father, feed us from Your Word this morning. Change our hearts. May we be followers of Christ by Your grace and by Your Spirit who bring You glory, even in the most difficult of days. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and for His glory because He is our Savior, our Mediator, our loving Lord. Amen. Please be seated. What is your usual response to moments and days of great affliction? How do you, what, what feelings do you have in your heart during those high-pressure moments? And how do you respond to them? How do you seek to be content and at peace in moments of great affliction? How do you try to feed, minister to your own soul, your own heart at those times? How do you respond to the people around you during seasons of great affliction? How do you strive to continue to trust and obey the Lord faithfully? What do you imagine will be your personal responses to the knowledge that you will soon be departing from this earth and this body to be with the Lord? Well, we have a great privilege this morning to look at Paul's final written words before he left this earth as he was in great affliction, the final days of his life. We have as an example here for us. We have his instruction in verses 9 through 22 of 1 Timothy 4. I'm compelled as I studied this text to really frame the whole section of verses 9 through 22 with the last verse. Would you look at verse 22 with me? Paul writes, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. The first sentence you see in verse 22, the Lord be with your spirit. Your is a singular personal pronoun. And so he's speaking specifically to Timothy there. But you, at the end of the last sentence, grace be with you, that's plural. And so one of the things we know from that sentence is that 
This letter of 2 Timothy was intended to be read to the entire church at Ephesus. And so as Paul writes his final words down, he says to Timothy, I desire for you in all of the hardships that you have experienced and will continue to experience to enjoy and to be sustained by and helped by the full blessings of the presence of Christ. Paul leaves Timothy with a sense of the presence of Christ. Is Christ present with us? He certainly is. Where is Christ today? Christ is at the right hand of God in physical form, reigning over His church as King of kings and Lord of lords until all enemies would be put under His feet. And yet at the same time, He has sent His Spirit to live in us. That Spirit of power, the Spirit of the reigning, almighty, powerful Christ who has authority over all, lives in us. And that Spirit brings us infinite blessing. Especially in times of great affliction. That's what Paul desires for Timothy. And certainly, we've seen throughout the letter of 2 Timothy that Paul continues to point Timothy and the Ephesian church to the strength of Christ's grace. All blessing from heavenly places given to the believer because of the work of Christ on their behalf. Paul says, I want you to have the full blessing of the presence of Christ. I want you to be strengthened by the grace of Christ. This is the great blessing that Paul gives to Timothy and the people of Ephesus for the difficulty of final days. And certainly, Paul would want to extend to his beloved Timothy and the church in Ephesus those things that are most meaningful and effective for him in his most difficult days. I think what we see here in verses 9 through 21 is, in a sense, a look at the heart of Paul as he responds to various things at the end of his life. It's a very personal section of the letter. Very personal remarks. As I've I, I given the title to the message, Final Personal Remarks from the Departing Apostle. Here's what Paul is thinking about. While sitting in the darkness, the rankness, the dampness of the Mamertine prison, waiting for his martyrdom, the sewer system of London right on the other side of the door. What is he thinking about then? The presence of Christ, the grace of Christ are certainly Paul's constant trusts. In the prison, and we'll see as we look through this letter, or this, this section, when as he recognizes himself being abandoned by those whom he once trusted, as he remembers ways that he has been falsely, unjustly treated, how does he respond to all that? Days before his death, facing the sword, there is nothing that an afflicted servant of Christ needs more than the full benefit of the presence and the grace of Christ through the various means that Christ provides them to him. That's our need too, just like it was the Apostle Paul's. We need to learn to rely wholly upon Christ's presence. 
We need to learn, even in the most difficult days of affliction, to rely wholly upon the grace of Christ. Even those days when we anticipate our leaving this earth, this body, and to be with the Lord. All too often, we respond to such experiences in a fleshly, earthly, godless way, don't we? It's common to us. We often tend to seek mental escape through some various means, don't we? When the pressures of affliction are heavy, it's so natural to us to escape in some way, to think about something else, something mindless. We tend to neglect the Word even sometimes. Do we? Do we neglect the Word and prayer, song, fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? Why is it so easy in those moments of affliction to neglect those things that will be most meaningful, helpful, and precious to us? We may give in to frustration, discontent, anxiety, anger. We may even sin and become bitter against others, especially when we consider maybe that those whom we have loved and depended on have in some part contributed to the place of affliction where we find ourselves. Like Paul did. We may choose isolation from brothers and sisters in Christ. We may even become doubtful of God's goodness unassured of His love, forgetful of His greatness. And so we have great need for this text, you and I. Great need for this text to see how the grace of God and the presence of Christ is at work in the heart of the Apostle. So here's the main idea, if I could summarize it in some way. Servants of Christ, when you come to days of great affliction and even your final earthly days, continue to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ. I wish that message for you this morning. So to be helped with this, let's observe together how Paul continues to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ as an example for us as he responds to different situations and different people during his final days of affliction. There are three points, and we'll only look at the first point this morning because it's pretty extensive. We're going to go through, I suppose, a a list of Paul's closest associates and how they played a part in his final days. Number one together, number one, let's look at the personal requests from great need that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy. Personal requests from great need. Let me read again verses 9-13. through Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Galatia. Crescens has gone to, Galatia, or to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. And into this first point, I want to also bring 
a section of the final part. He says, he reiterates his desire to Timothy in verse 21, and he says, do your best to come before winter. And in verse 20, he also fills out some other reasons why he is alone with Luke. He says in verse 20, Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. You may look through this final section and see a bunch of names that you don't recognize. Is that where you are this morning? I'm hoping that by the end of our time together, you will look at names here differently. And that you will see these as people whom God placed in the life of the Apostle Paul to affect him in some way. To give him, to be a channel to him of the grace of God. So many different things that we'll see in this text. See, Paul lived day after day, year after year with his brothers in ministry. You can read about this through the book of Acts. You see it all over Paul's letters. Paul was not a lone ranger. Paul fully understood the necessity and effectiveness of living with brothers and sisters in Christ in a healthy, spirit-filled, interdependent manner for the sake of Christ, for the sake of ministry. The conclusions of many of his letters alone indicates how much he valued those whom God has brought into his life. The first one that comes to my mind particularly is the book of Romans. The, book of, the letter of Romans ends name after name with a strong expression of affection from Christ to these different individuals. Paul knew how Christ would minister to him during these intense hours before martyrdom through his faithful brothers in Christ. So he called for Timothy and Mark to come to him. He says there, verse 9, Do your best to come to me soon. And then again in verse 21, Do you, Come to me before winter. There's an urgency that Paul relays to Timothy. Come to me quickly. Hurry, Timothy. Time is short. Paul needed the spiritual ministry of his friends and possibly some additional companionship for maybe some final ministry tasks that he needed to accomplish even in the city of Rome, for the church of Rome. So he urged Timothy to come quickly before winter. Time was of the essence. Why? Because his martyrdom was soon. You know, there, was no, there was no stopping or slowing the, the Roman judicial system that would certainly want to hurry the head of the church off to being beheaded. He knew Timothy would not travel well across the sea in the winter. He had certainly experienced the sea himself, even shipwrecked. So he urged Timothy to come quickly because he desired Timothy's companionship. He probably had more to tell Timothy. As you've learned, as we've learned from 2 Timothy, Paul considers Timothy his predecessor. He's passing the baton off into his hands. There's, there's final things that need to be said. Final things that need to be done. He had more for Timothy to do for the sake of the Gospel. And certainly no one, no one could replace Timothy in Paul's heart. I mean, when you're feeling your lowest, maybe we, when you've even had a moment in your life where you thought, I don't know, I'm going to make it. Who do you want with you there? You want the one that you know you have the strongest affection with. They are a help to you. 
1 Timothy 1 and verse 2, as well as 2 Timothy 1 and verse 2, you see Paul call Timothy his true and beloved child in the faith. There was no one in the New Testament that we see Paul had such a strong and close relationship for. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 4, he tells Timothy, I long to see you as he's there in the Mamertine prison. He's being very, very open, very personal, very real, very human in this final section. 1 Corinthians 4.17, he calls Timothy a beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In fact, he told the Corinthian church that Timothy would remind him, remind them, Timothy would remind the Corinthian church of Paul's ways in Christ. And that he would teach them like Paul would teach them, like Paul teaches everywhere in every church, it says there. So Timothy, there was no one else quite like Paul than Timothy. Timothy ministered like Paul. Paul taught him how to. Timothy taught like Paul. I love what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians 2, 19-22. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. Wow, right? The Apostle Paul will say that about you, right? I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So for these reasons, Paul summoned Timothy. Come quickly. He wanted his encouraging presence, his his spiritual help, his comfort. But why was his desire for Timothy so urgent at this time? Well, this is where Paul goes off and explains quite a few situations simply to Timothy by name. In a sense, he's almost giving Timothy a a sort of a display of what's going on in his ministry associations at the moment. Come to me soon for, here's the reason, I want you to come soon, Timothy, because, what? Well, Paul had been left alone except for Luke. This is, this is, in a sense, very heartbreaking to read this. Understand all who Paul is to the church, who Christ called him to be, and how at the end of his life, what? He didn't have it easy, did he? Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Who is Demas? Well, let's say who was Demas. Let's underscore the was. Colossians 4.14 reads that Luke, the beloved physician, physician, greets you as does Demas. Demas, before this point in time, was considered a beloved fellow associate of the Apostle Paul. Philemon 1.23-24 says it even more plainly. Epaphras, my... Fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, Philemon. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, who was of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. So, Paul considered Demas a fellow worker. 
And then you have this sharp difference right here in 1 Timothy 4.10. And, and these are the three times that you see Demas mentioned in the New Testament. Demas, in love with the world, has deserted me and gone home? The Thessalonica? What happened? What happened to this fellow worker with Paul at Paul's most difficult hour? He loved the world more than Christ. You know, think about how, how intense this particular moment was in the life of Paul, but not just Paul, but his associate. Nero was orchestrating things at the moment. You understand where we're going with this. Nero was this insane emperor of Rome who burned Rome in order to rebuild it and then blamed it on the Christians so that he could escape the, the bad reputation of, of doing what he did. And that's when Christian persecution accelerated intensely. This man did insane things, which we'll talk about next week, Lord willing. But that pressure on Paul, not only of the associates, I mean, that's what these Roman officials wanted was for the followers of whatever Christian head they had captured to come to him, right? Why? So they could recognize and identify and deal with them as well. Could you imagine how fearful it was for Paul's associates to remain near him at that time? That's the price you pay for the gospel. That's why Paul said to Timothy in chapter 1, do not be ashamed of the gospel nor of what? Me, the prisoner of Christ. Don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the sake of the gospel, Paul writes. That's not what Demas did though. He loved the world too much. He loved the present life and the world too much in order to sacrifice it by an open association with the Apostle Paul. So Demas said, I'm out of here. I'm deserting you, Paul. The pressure of persecution revealed the unfaithful heart of Demas. And that's why Paul was left alone. What was, what was going on in, in Demas' heart? 1 John 2, 15-17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not of the Father. It's of the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. You see, Demas counted the cost and added it up wrongly. He valued the world that was passing away rather than eternal life with God that endures forever. And he let Paul and Christ go so he could hold on to the world. I think Demas was like Judas. We see this sort of thing that Jesus explained in Matthew 18, right? When someone receives the Word with joy... And then the tribulations on account of the Word come. What happens? I don't want it anymore. It's too hard to, to pay the cost of letting go of the things of this earth and follow Christ to, to the end. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So this is why Paul's alone here. One of the reasons is because Demas deserted him and went to Thessalonica likely his home. Paul continues and he brings up Crescens. says, Crescens has gone to Galatia. 
Whose crescents? Well, he's, un- he's unknown to us other than this verse. As you read through the book of Acts, let's see here. I'm sorry for just a moment. My notes are out of order. Okay, I think I got it right now. We'll see if it's... All right, we'll, we'll keep trying. If I do this again, you'll know why. Crescens is unknown to us other than this verse. What we see here is that he had gone to Galatia. Paul doesn't say why, other than the indication that the verb here is different than the verb that it's associated with Demas. We don't get the sense here that, that Crescens was someone who, like Demas, deserted Paul because of persecution. This is a different word intentionally written here. If Paul sent him to Galatia, it could be that Crescens was a strong servant of Christ who was spiritually mature and capable of ministering to the church in Galatia, whom Paul wrote to correct their doctrinal errors. Remember the letter of Galatians? And so here we see Paul caring for that church through potentially sending Crescens to care for them. Whatever reason Crescens went to Galatia, the effect is the same in that Paul was still left alone. The next name we have here is Titus. Who's Titus? Titus is a well-known servant of Christ in the New Testament, one of Paul's fellow workers in the Gospel. 2 Corinthians has a good deal of biographical information, if you will, about Titus. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6, Titus was said there by Paul to be a great comfort to him and the ministry team there. 2 Corinthians 8, 16, you see there that Titus loved the Corinthians like Paul did. 2 Corinthians 8, 23, says that Titus was a partner and a fellow worker for the benefit of the Corinthians. Galatians 2, 1, 3 speak of him as a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. In Titus 1, the book that bears Titus' name to whom it was written, Paul calls Titus again, like Timothy, my true child in a common faith. So here again, the verb indicates to us that Titus had not deserted Paul, but that he had gone to Galatia, probably on ministry, probably on assignment from Paul. In fact, Titus 3.12 indicates that Paul had instructed Timothy to meet him at Nicopolis, which is just north of Dalmatia. So, apparently, Titus is following the apostles' plans here by going to Dalmatia. Titus was a faithful minister of Christ whom, according to the letter that bears his name, Paul had assigned to a challenging ministry in bringing up the church on the island of Crete. Remember the description of the Cretans in Titus chapter 1? Well, that's those to whom Paul sent Titus. 
So apparently Paul had commissioned him to another ministry task in Dalmatia, and so Paul was left alone. Another name here we see is Luke. Luke alone is with me, Paul writes here in verse 11. Only Luke is with Timothy. Who was Luke? Well, Luke was a brilliant, greatly valued ministry companion, a confidant of the Apostle Paul. Maybe we can say the historian of the Apostle Paul. Maybe the secretary of the Apostle Paul. But certainly the friend and the personal physician of the Apostle Paul that traveled with him on his journeys. Colossians 4.14, Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. And again, he's referred to in Philemon 1, 23-24. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus sends greetings to you, and so does Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. What books of the New Testament did the Spirit of God choose Luke to write? Well, certainly the Gospel that bears his name, but also the historical account of Acts. So Luke wrote, I think it's 52 chapters of the New Testament. Luke, being a physician, was certainly a fitting ministry companion for Paul, being that Paul struggled struggled greatly with physical issues. Think about it. 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says to the Colossians, or to the Corinthians, when I come there to you, I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling when I made known to you the gospel. 2 Corinthians 6, 3-10 gives a list of the many experiences that, Timoth- or that Paul lived through, such as beatings, stonings, hunger, shipwreck. I mean, the things that are listed there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 certainly must wear on a body. And of course, Paul said what? I bear in my body what? The marks of Christ in his suffering. So certainly it would have been very helpful for there to be a physician to accompany Paul in ministry. Maybe Luke sort of propped him up in a way and kept him going by the grace of Christ. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10 speaks of Paul's thorn in the flesh, which simply by that description we may conclude is a, a possible physical issue that kept Paul halting in a way and yet relying upon the power of Christ. Luke was a precious, precious gift to Paul from God. As you read through the book of Acts, you will notice the we sections. Remember, Luke is writing that history. And as you read through there, you'll say, we did this and we did that. It doesn't always say that, but those sections where it says we, we're talking about Luke and Paul. And so you can assume that Paul was accompanied by Luke in those events. Luke was with Paul for his second missionary journey, the end part of his third missionary journey during a shipwreck, and for both of Paul's imprisonments. Luke was a loving, humble, skillful servant to the Apostle Paul, there with him even at the end of his earthly life. Paul indicates that Luke alone is with him, not as a slight upon the character or ability of Luke, but probably because Paul had, though very grateful for Timothy's ministry, some additional need for ministry brothers beyond that of the personal role of Luke, the beloved physician. 
I suppose it's possible that Paul needed a deeper spiritual encouragement than maybe what Luke could offer to him. Or, he may have needed someone to accomplish some important ministry tasks in Rome, and he couldn't send Luke away, and so he summons Timothy and Mark for those things. The second part of verse 11 says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Mark. This is, this is John Mark. Sometimes he's referred to simply as John. Other times Mark. Sometimes John Mark. He's the well-known associate of apostles in the New Testament. He's especially known for writing the second gospel. The one that bears his name. Matthew, Mark. And now Paul and Mark have an interesting past together. Do you know the story of Mark and the Apostle Paul? Acts 12 and verse 12 shows us that apparently the prayer meeting of the church in Jerusalem that was held for Peter when he was imprisoned was in the house of a woman named Mary who was the mother of John Mark, this particular Mark. And that's where Peter went after the angel released him. Remember the young girl Rhoda went to report that Peter had showed up and didn't open the gate for him. And the people were continuing to pray even though Peter was there. But that was likely happening in the home of Mark and his mother. Acts 12 and verse 25, Paul and Barnabas brought Mark with them for ministry. They both were encouraged to take Mark along initially for a ministry companionship. But then in Acts 13.13, we see that something tempted Mark to abandon them early on in that ministry and return back home to Jerusalem. Mark sort of bailed out there and went back home. And so Paul did not tolerate that sort of unfaithfulness and lack of confidence in the Lord in the sense that he wasn't going to then bring Mark with him and depend upon him as if nothing like that unfaithfulness had happened. And so when we come to the end of Acts 15, verses 37-39, to 39, when Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance and take him with them, Paul disagreed strongly and they went their separate ways. And that's where we see two different ministry associations begin. Barnabas and Mark, and Paul with Silas. But then when we come to Colossians 4 and verse 10, as well as Philippians 23 and 24, by the time Paul is in his first imprisonment in Rome, Mark is actually there with him. And sending his greeting to the recipients of the letters of Colossae and Philemon. And Paul exhorts the Colossians to welcome him should he come to them. And he tells Philemon that he is, Mark is, a fellow worker now. So what changed? Well, over the course of time, apparently, Christ restored Mark. Brought an unfaithful brother to become a faithful brother. Kind of the inverse of Demas. In fact, it's possible that Peter took Mark under his mentorship, and the Lord used Peter in Mark's life not only to strengthen him, but to give Mark the eyewitness account that would be used for the writing 
of his gospel. So the gospel of Mark is from the perspective of Peter's eyewitness account. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that it's potentially so that Mark was mentored by Peter and that's how he grew to become faithful? Well, 1 Peter 5.13 says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. So, obviously, Peter felt a close companionship with Mark. And now at the end of Paul's earthly life, Paul calls for Timothy... And he says here, bring him with you. Of all people that you want, at the end of your life, Paul, when so many others have deserted you, bring Mark. What a huge change by God's grace. Because he's useful. Useful to me for ministry service. Apparently, Paul had some additional ministry tasks that needed to be done, and he needed some faithful servants to accomplish them. And Mark, after many years now, has proven to be a faithful servant of Christ and can be called upon and relied upon in a very intense and critical hour. Bring Mark. Paul goes on to talk about Tychicus. Acts 20 and verse 4 names Tychicus as one of the Asians from Asia Minor, who accompanied him for ministry to Macedonia. In Ephesians 6 and verse 21, as well as Colossians 4-7, we see that Paul sent Tychicus from his first imprisonment to the churches of Ephesus and Colossae. Evidently, he was the one who delivered the letters of Ephesians and Colossians. And he was to tell those churches everything that they needed to know about Paul to bring them up to speed on Paul's situation. Paul calls him a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. Titus 3.12 again speaks of Tychicus, indicates that he was one of the candidates that Paul was intending to send to replace Titus in Crete when Paul called for Titus to meet him in Nicopolis. Paul sent Tychicus to Ephesus with the letter of 2 Timothy to replace Timothy in Ephesus so that Timothy could come and join Paul in Rome. And so what we see just from those points throughout the New Testament is that Tychicus is indeed a well-loved, well-trusted, faithful, dependable brother and fellow minister to Paul, bringing word to Timothy to come quickly. Erastus. Look at um, down to verse 20. Who is Erastus? Well, Acts 19.22 indicates that Erastus was a helper of Paul and one that Paul sent to Timothy, with Timothy, to Macedonia for ministry. So he was certainly their ministry partner. Romans 16.23 probably refers to Erastus as well and names him as the city treasurer of Corinth. And it is in Corinth that Erastus remained and therefore probably could not join Paul in Rome because his responsibilities, whether work or ministry, were too pressing at that time. Erastus remained at Corinth. And so this is another reason why Paul calls for Timothy and Mark and contributes to his aloneness. 
Trophimus. Trophimus. I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Acts 21-29 again indicates that Trophimus was from Ephesus. Acts 20 verse 4 names Trophimus as one of the Asians with Tychicus who accompanied Paul for ministry to Macedonia. In fact, Acts 21, 27-29 explains that Paul was arrested in the temple of Jerusalem in part because they recognized Trophimus as one of the Greeks who was with Paul and the Jews there supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple which was forbidden by them. And now Paul writes that his dear ministry companion is ill and therefore cannot come to see him during his final days. A reason beyond Paul's control, certainly, part of God's sovereign plan that brought about Paul's aloneness was Trophimus' illness. Another reason for Paul's sending for Timothy and Mark. Now, we've looked at several names. And what do we see Paul doing here during his final days. Let's bring all this to a point of application. Yes, he is seeking to get some final ministry desires accomplished, and therefore he is calling for some faithful service to do it for him. But I think most importantly, he's seeking to rely upon the presence and grace of Christ ministered through his brothers in Christ. Do your best to come to me soon. Come before winter. In his aloneness, he is calling faithful brothers in Christ to his side. Luke alone is with me. There's nothing like a brother or sister in Christ filled with the Spirit to read God's Word to you, to sing hymns to you, to pray for you, to exhort you in the faith when you are greatly afflicted and feeling alone and overwhelmed by your circumstances. You think Paul could ever feel that way? Sure he could. He was a man just like we are. Christ has designed the members of his body to need each other at various critical times and to be effective in ministering to one another in need because he has filled each of us with his Holy Spirit. Paul knows after a whole lifetime of ministry partnerships, that Christ, at the most critical times in the lives of His servants, most often chooses to minister His presence and His grace to His afflicted and even departing servants through their brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a lesson we can take to heart as well. That's part of what it means to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ. Servants of Christ, when you come to days of great affliction, even your departing days, this is one way that you can continue to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ. Now, is that all that Paul wants? He wants brothers. What else does he want? He wants some clothes. Bring the cloak. Just quickly here, 13a, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Paul is asking for, let's call it some physical provisions here, right? A cloak. Do you know what a cloak is? 
picture a very, very large, almost blanket-like outer garment made of heavy material, something like wool, but without any sleeves. I've probably seen this sort of thing maybe in a, a movie uh, that took place in, in, in the Middle East during the days of the New Testament. No sleeves, but with then a hole in the middle of it for your head to fit through. A cloak was used to keep a body warm and dry from weather, or even as a blanket or a mat for sleeping when you know, certainly days of travel in the, in the New Testament, you had to have a place to sleep, and so sometimes your cloak was the place to sleep. You lay down on the floor and wrap it around you, and that becomes your, your sleeping mat. Paul would certainly have benefited from his cloak in the cold, damp, stony Mamertine prison in Rome, especially with the winter coming on. And so he humbly asked and allowed his brothers in Christ to provide him an important material need. Paul asked Timothy, please stop by Troas on the way from Ephesus to Rome, which you had been right on the way, and pick up the cloak from Carpus's house. Who's Carpus? Carpus. Apparently, Paul left his cloak at Carpus's house. And this is the only place, again, in the New Testament where Carpus is referred to. So who is he, and why in the world did Carpus have Paul's cloak? Well, here's the thought. Presumably, Carpus is a fellow believer and friend of Paul's. And it's possible that Paul was in Troas, staying at Carpus's home, when he was arrested the last time and hauled off to Rome. So that makes sense then. So when, when Paul was arrested, it's possible that things happened so abruptly, so quickly, so forcefully, that he didn't have time to collect the things with him that he needed, such as his cloak. And like we'll see in a moment, books, parchments, all he had was himself. So being in need of his cloak, he asked Timothy to bring it. Just a point of application on this. Paul did some miracles in his day, didn't he? Raised the dead. He did a lot of things. And so certainly Paul knew the power of God. Paul could have continued waiting and asking for a miracle to happen that would meet his physical needs. God, would you please, here in this prison, make a cloak appear? Maybe, maybe he did pray that. I don't know. doesn't give us indication. But Paul understood something else, that Christ most often provides for his own through the means of brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here we find Paul not too proud to say, basically, I'm cold. I am uncomfortable. Can you bring a cloak? My cloak, please. Bring it. He wasn't too proud to express his physical needs and humbly ask for a brother in Christ to meet them. And that too is what it means to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ. The last personal request that Paul asks for are the books and the parchments. Books, parchments. Also the books and above all the parchments seems as if Paul left those behind in the rush of his last arrest as well. What are books and parchments? Well, Paul not only felt physical needs in the Maritime prison, certainly, but also in the days before his martyrdom, urgent spiritual needs. He needed to what? Read, meditate, even write. The books were probably papyrus scrolls, the parchments were probably animal skin scrolls, 
And so what we have here, in essence, is Paul saying, please bring me my Bible. I need to read God's Word. The Old Testament is what Paul had. And he was also possibly asking for some of his own letters mixed in there and possibly some blank material on which to write something more. And so we see Paul, during his afflicted and final days, that what he needed most was to think on the Word of Christ and to meditate on and even to communicate those thoughts on paper. Is that unusual for a saint under great pressure? No. Think of the psalmist David. He had a similar experience under great affliction. Psalm 119.67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It was affliction that drew Paul, or David, to the word of Christ. Psalm 119.71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Or even at the end of Psalm 119, verse 107, I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. And again, we would all do well to follow this example. Days of affliction, even days when we come to the time where we are departing from this earth, those days call for great faith. Do they not? Great trust in the person of Christ. And great faith demands that we hear and meditate on and rest in the Word of Christ. We need the Word of God during such days as these, just like Paul did. We need, above all things, the Word of God. Just like Paul says, above all, the parchments. This is part of what it means to rely wholly upon the grace and the presence of Christ. Think about how have how afflicted and dying saints have faithfully endured over the millennia. You ever think about that? How often they endured as their brothers and sisters in Christ gathered around their beds, reading, singing, praying, encouraging them from the Word of Christ. That's how saints are meant to die. With the Word, with song, with their brothers in Christ around them. Servants of Christ, when you come to the days of great affliction, even your final earthly days, continue to rely wholly upon the presence and grace of Christ. As we close this morning, you know certainly that Paul was not the only saint who had such an experience at the end of his life like this. Do you know that uniquely, William Tyndale shared a very similar experience? In fact, Handley Moole writes this. In 1535, immured by the persecutor at Vilvorde in Belgium, he wrote not long before his fiery martyrdom a Latin letter to the Marquis of Bergen, governor of the castle. Here's what William Tyndale wrote. I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I must remain here for the winter, you would be you would be the Let's see. that he would ask the commissary, basically, to be so kind as to send me from things of mine which he has a warmer cap, I feel the cold painfully in my head, also a warmer cloak, for the cloak I have is very thin, 
He has a woolen shirt of mine, if he will send it. But most of all, my Hebrew Bible, grammar, and vocabulary, that I might spend my time in that pursuit. That sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? That's, that's how those who are relying upon the presence of Christ and the grace of Christ face these sorts of days, days of great affliction, days even when they are looking to depart. And so we can pray that the Lord would enable us to respond in such days as these for His glory, like they did. Let me say before we pray that if you are with us this morning or even listening online and and you don't know Christ like Paul did, that when you come to your final days, if you don't know Christ then, you won't have the comfort that Paul had from brothers and sisters in Christ, from the Word of Christ from the presence of Christ. Listen to the words of Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. The author of Hebrews writes, And just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Those verses are well known. You know that after death comes judgment. So when you see Christ face to face, will He be your judge, condemning you to just punishment for your sin for eternity? Or will He be a welcome sight to your eyes, granting you the eternal salvation that He has promised? What's the difference? The difference is your response to Christ now. Do you see your sin for what it is? Do you see God's justice upon your life as a just judge condemning you for your sin to an eternity without Him as fitting for your sin? Do you also see the mercy of God expressed through Christ on the cross in His righteous life to be your righteous covering before the eyes of the judge to remove your guilt and sin and put it upon His own Son and take it in His own body on the cross? Christ is the way to the Father the truth, the life. And so if you want to have that same sort of peace that Paul had, that these other have, even at the end of their life, when, when this life is passing away, then I urge you this morning to turn to Christ, away from sin, away from self-righteousness, because Christ is all that you need. It's Christ whom, whom satisfies God fully, and only Him. I would urge you to think about that this morning, and rest in Christ alone if you have not already. Let's stand together. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to this text and we ask you to continue to teach us through it as we, Lord willing, finish it next week. We thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul. We remember how he often said, follow me as I follow Christ. What we want to follow most, Father, about the Apostle Paul is his absolute dependence upon the grace of Christ and the presence of Christ so that we may live for the glory of Christ as he did. Father, teach us these things for your glory, we pray. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen.